0: Hi! Welcome to this episode of Questionable History by two snarky sisters. I'm Amy. I'm Beth. This is a podcast about books. We like to read historical romances from all different eras. We dive deep to discover what works and what's questionable. As a reminder, we talk about all of the plot points of a book, so if you don't like spoilers, pause now and come back when you're ready. We read books so you don't have to. Let's get started. today's podcast, we are talking about the book Sweet Disorder, which is the first in the Lively St. Lemiston series. Um, The author is Rose Lerner, and it was published in March of 2014. Uh, It has a rating on Goodreads of 3.75 out of 5 with approximately 1,400 reviews. Here's the description of the book from the Libby app, which is where I borrow all my books from the library. Nick Diamond enjoyed the rough-and-tumble military life until a bullet to the leg sent him home to his emotionally distant, politically-obsessed family. For months, he's lived alone with his depression, blockaded in his lodgings. But with his younger brother desperate to win the local election, Nick has a new set of marching orders, dust off the legendary family charm, and maneuver the beautiful Phoebe Sparks into a politically advantageous marriage. One marriage was enough for Phoebe. Under her town's bylaws, though, she owns a vote that only a husband can cast. Much as she would love to simply ignore the unappetizing matrimonial candidate pushed at her by the handsome Earl's son, she can't. Her teenage sister is pregnant, and Phoebe's last ditch defense against her sister's ruin is her vote and her hand. Nick and Phoebe soon realize the only match their hearts will accept is the one society will not allow, but as election intrigue turns dark, they'll have to cast the cruelest vote of all— loyalty, or love. Warning contains elections, confections, and a number of erections. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I found that very humorous. We did not write that line. That is legitimately in the description. So when you get a warning like that, you know we're checking this out from the library. We're going to talk about it. Yep. Okay. Sweet disorder. That was actually a very thorough Summary. Right? You really almost don't need to read the book. I know. (laughs) Our job is done. You're welcome. So here is the funniest thing that happened in the beginning of this book for me. I was taking notes, highlighting things because I knew we wanted to talk about it. And here's a description of a character that appears early in the book. Okay. A few drops of rain glistened in his sleek brown hair on his broad-clothed shoulders and on the petals of the pink and white carnation, the colors of the local Tory party, in his buttonhole. I read that, and I thought, oh, wow, okay, sleek brown hair, etc., cetera, broad shoulders, I'm imagining breadth or width or whatever, like, okay. this has got to be the hero. And then I read a couple more pages, and she's like, drat, not happy that he's here. And I realized that this is actually, like, not oh. a bad guy, but it's like the... Oh, that, uh, the... He's the opposing party yes, person. Who also and... wants her to marry someone from the Tory party so they can have the vote. Yeah, so apparently to get this vote, the there's... There's two competing people. There's Nick, who is actually the hero, and he's trying to get uh, her support for the Whig Party. And then there's this guy whose name is Mr. Gilchrist, and he's trying to get her support for the Tory Party. But I just went for apparently learned behavior where they talked about sleek brown hair, and I thought it must be the hero because right. they're talking kindly about him. Right. Because it feels like a trope in so many romance novels that you are either gorgeous or you're not the hero. Exactly. Turns out, in the end, I think the reason they were gentle in that description is because he ends up developing what I thought was a really cute relationship oh. with her pregnant sister. Uh, like, it was my favorite relationship in the book. Yeah. I'm just going to disclose that right now.
1: They were fun. sweet.
0: They were super cute. And they're very young. Like, yeah. he's only 20, 21. And um, the sister uh, 16. is 16. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I thought long, it was cute. Lookers. I thought it was a fun... A fun, subtle one. They didn't like shoehorn this Mm -hmm. secondary relationship. They had to get kind of stuck together and interact in the background. And then you realize that they don't hate it. They kind of enjoy it, even though they got stuck together. And that was a really fun development to read. Yeah. And I got the impression that they became friends.
1: Yes. Because friends were kind of forced together, Mm -hmm. like you
0: said. He uh, probably at first started doing it because he's trying to sway the older sister. Um And then, yeah, it was really sweet. And he ends up being the one to save her because... Yeah, he's he, who saves the, the sister from ruin. Uh, the interesting thing related to the sister, though, if you remember in the book, every time Phoebe refers to her sister or talks to her, she calls her Ships as yeah. a nickname. I don't think that was ever explained. Her sister's name is Helen and she calls her Ships? It was an interesting choice for the author to make to put such an unusual nickname yeah. in the book and with no explanation. And so it was jarring. Yeah. By the end of the book I was kind of like, "Why is she called Ships? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Unless, oh wait, maybe I solved it. Maybe she was named from Helen, Helen of, of Troy, Troy. But and she supposedly It's two led sentences, the ships. girl. You could have just told us why yeah. and then I would have walked away happy. Yeah. It was so random. Speaking of names, The other name that I wanted to point out in this book is there was a character whose name... I don't remember what he did, but his name was Mr. Dromgoole. D-R-O-M-G-O-O-L-E. Dromgoole. And I had to wonder, how do they choose their names for these? Do they go to historical records of the time? Do they look through, like, census records and just pull names that sound interesting? Or do they take their Scrabble game and they just shake up all the tiles of letters and throw them on the ground and see what lands? Because... I don't Wrong know group. when there are odd names like that. Yes. I like to imagine if I wrote a book, I would put people I know in the book. All my characters would be named for like friends or family. Right. Um, but, but yeah, when you get those really odd last names, that's not, I well, don't know, maybe it was like a, a last name in her family history or right? something. I don't know. Usually it feels like authors lean on very common type ones where it would be, um, you know, Walters or Smith or something that maybe would make sense just as a common name now. Otherwise, I think if I was writing a book, I would probably try to look up some sort of historical records and just pick names. and Like, point. well, someone was named that back in yeah, the day. Right. Because every now and again, a name will stick out too, where someone might be named something that that seems jarring because it seems like maybe that's a more modern name and that shouldn't be oh. in the past. But we can be sur- surprised because... Names like Miranda, for example, I believe actually were relatively common and they they go through waves of positive and negative. So rather than falling on the the habit, let's say, of, oh, I'm going to name everyone Jane or Mary or something like that. And the the Pride and Prejudice rule, (laughs) Elizabeth, everyone's named (laughs) right? I've got five girls. It is kind of fun when they mix it up a little bit. But one of the authors we've read, and I can't remember who right now, one thing I loved that she would do is at the end of her book, she would put a little bit of an author's note and explain some things like that. And maybe that's where she would explain where the word ships, the nickname ships came from. Or she would explain Dromghoul might seem like an interesting one, but I like to find old historic uh, census records and pull names from that. It'd be fun to know what the author's thought process is. So one of the things I loved about this book, was the setting in that all of the action takes place in October, 1812 in West Sussex in a town called lively St. Lemiston. And so it's kind of like a a fun encapsulation. There's, there's a couple of brief scenes that take place in London or something, but the bulk of the action is all in one place. And so it allowed us to really develop the characters, all the extra side characters that exist in this small town. We got to know uh, the local pastry, Baker guy, because he's one of the candidates to potentially marry our heroine. And we got to know a little bit more about what their culture was like, and what their yeah. society was like. And that's in what a awesome. small town. Which yeah. Is well, small-ish town, I guess. Um, I really liked the, it was so different focusing on an election because it's particularly having just gone through an election here in the U.S. and how intense and how heated it can get. And I just did not even think about back back in historical times, it could be just as heated. And there were two big parties, for the most part. There were the Whigs and the Tories, very similar to Democratic-Republican type of debates and wanting power and wanting to be the ruling in the House, in the representatives. Um, and so to me, that was very fascinating to take a political setting like that in a historical romance. And I it also had very big vibes of, um, like scandalesque. Like I'm trying to like the mom, like the, the hero's mom was pretty much Olivia from scandal. Like she's like, I to manage and manage, um, the political scene. That's what I like. It was like her full-time job. I mean, she wasn't paid for it, but it was her passion, um, to the extent of perhaps not being the best mom (laughs) because she gave a lot of her energy. And so I also really like how that tied in, to a big theme in the book was relationships between parents and their children. For the heroine, I felt like it was mother and father, the comparison of what her relationship had been with her father and what her relationship had been with her mother. Um, and one thing that was really poignant to me was um, the hero at one point takes the heroine's mom out to lunch to get her out of the house. Cause she wants to go get her sister's clothes. Um, and so he's talking with her through lunch and She makes this reference of, it. she says, when she was small, she preferred me, you know. Mrs. Knight toyed with her fork. And then all at once, I couldn't do anything right. And I thought that was such the epitome of a mother-daughter relationship. Our mom is the one that's always, you know, the disciplinary and has to correct us. And so I'm not saying she had a great mom and they should have still been close. But it, it was just a very poignant line to me to show that moms don't start out being evil. They don't start out thinking, oh, I hate my kids and I'm going to make their life miserable. She probably was trying to be the best mom she could be to this daughter. And maybe she just didn't know how to be the mom she needed. And so just when she pointed out that when she was little, I was her favorite, you know, but then as she got older, we grew more distance, we grew apart and suddenly mom's evil and can't do anything right. I just thought that was a very... Uh, poignant reflection on the mother-daughter relationship. So I I was really fascinated that the author explored those familial relationships. Yeah, it was really well written that way. It was kind of like a book that allowed you to dive deeper, I think, into some of the family relationships above even some of the romances and stuff, because it let their personal romantic relationship develop but also be affected by yeah. family relationships, which yes. is real life. I mean, it wasn't so much the the simple trope of, uh, oh, my dad is, you know, a stern earl and I'm a wealthy heiress or whatever. It was really just about uh, Nick talking about how his mom was so focused on politics. Right. She was absent half the time. and. Very sket during election season, they got fifteen minutes a night, and that was it with her, and things like that, and how that affected him, yeah, and how he grew up feeling like he was never good enough, right, because he wasn't the political golden child son for her or whatever. Um, fun fact: It was about three fourths of the way through the book when I realized that uh, Nick. Has a younger brother Tony that I did know, but there's a third brother named Stephen or the something. Older brother, right? yeah. The heir, that one know? cracked me up because somehow I did not realize he existed, and they kept talking about Stephen, and I had to go back and be like, right. "Who the hell is Stephen?" Luckily, Libby has a search feature, and nice. I typed in his name and was able to remind myself. But
1: that I was spent really funny.
0: Most of the book thinking Tony was there, the oldest right? one, and I was like, "But I thought, what about the younger brother? He's running for yeah. the office." And then I thought, "Oh no, Tony's the one running. He must be the younger brother." Yeah. I yeah. Got lost a little so, bit. as I understand it now, the eldest brother is Stephen, and he's the heir to yes, an earldom or whatever. Guy. Yeah. And then there is Nick, who decided to join the army, and then yeah. he got injured in the war. And then there's Tony, and he's the one who's the current actually running Run, um rig running. candidate. Yeah. Right. And so they that's why Nick gets roped in. The mom wants Nick to try to get Phoebe to marry. The local pastry chef so that they can vote wig and vote for tony yeah, is essentially get, what two more votes or yeah something, something she, like that she, she somehow owns like two votes or something right, that they can because get because her father didn't have a an heir he didn't have a son so he oh. went to the oldest daughter okay. and that's her spouse On, whoever oh she married, thank you was some kind of charter in the town it, it was like specific to this town one so of it my might notes. Have been made up I don't know if that was truly history or if the author took creative license and made that part of this fictional town. One of the my notes was specifically about that, where I was basically saying how the hell does this work? Why does she have all these votes? Why is it by marriage? I was so yeah. confused, but it was one of those you do sometimes with the book, you just accept it. Yeah. Okay. And you all move right. on with life. Whatever. I'll buy your reality. Sure. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. I did want to, what you were saying about Nick and the relationship with his mom. Um, I like how he recognizes that really that's his motivation. That's what's driving him. He wants that acceptance from his mother. And so he's I think he's he even comes to the realization he's willing to do stuff he wouldn't do. But he's so desperate for his mom to acknowledge that he is good enough for the family that he's willing to do it until the end where he realizes, why do I care so much? You guys yeah. are horrible people and I, don't, I his, don't need you in my life right his now. His mom had to bribe him and essentially say she would cut off all the funding to keep him afloat if he didn't do this thing. And it was really kind of... Kind of tragic and sad in a way. Like, I mean, I don't quite get the obsession with the politics and whatnot, but, (laughs) you you know, your son is injured. He has a a limp and a lot of pain in his leg. And they talk about her wincing every time he walks. And so part of the deal they made was if he wins this bet, let's say, if he manages to get Phoebe married to their candidate's choice or whatever, then his mom's no longer allowed to wince when he moves. And I thought, what does that even mean to your psyche as a person yeah. that your mom can't stand to see you in pain, but not in a loving way. No. Not like a way if she's overly trying to care for him. It's almost like... You have an imperfection. Yeah, I don't want to see that. It you was know, you're, weird. You're weak. And weird. She, she seems to love her sons, but at the same time... There's an, I I have sons and Amy has a son. So as mothers of sons, there's an element there of kind of like, wait a minute. You know what I mean? Like I can't imagine being in that so focused that I I don't love my son. I would be so grateful that my son came back from the war alive Mm -hmm. that I would not care if he was missing a leg. But yeah, Yeah. it was almost like you are no longer perfect. I'm mad that you went to war anyways. And so this just reminds me every time I see you limp, it reminds me you went to war. There's a lot of complexity with family relationships. And we learn that Tony, the youngest son, has been viewed as a bit of the golden boy. He's been groomed since he was six or something towards a political career. And so we see that disparity. Nick never felt good enough. And it seemed like Tony was always automatically somehow good enough. And that must have been hard. Right. Especially Especially because he ends up being the villain of the book. If you can say a villain, because there's not a a trope villain in this book, but there are but they're, I mean, he's a scumbag. I mean, he seduced a young girl. And... Yeah. So one of the main mysteries, if you will, of the book is who got ships pregnant? Who got Helen pregnant, right? Was it a mystery for you or did you figure it out pretty early on? It was still a bit of a mystery. Okay. And here's why. So Phoebe's dead husband had run a printing press with her brother-in-law, with his brother, right? And so... There was an unusual aspect in the story of him acting kind of odd, and yeah. I can't remember his Protective. name right now. Yeah. Jack, I think. Yeah, Jack. Jack. Sparks. So Jack was acting kind of odd in the beginning, and I couldn't tell if Jack was the father of the baby. I kept wondering I that if that was happening. Bit. But then it's revealed that Jack's in love Loves with the wealthy daughter of the opposite political party, which was a different conflict going on in the background. But I found that like, okay, okay. And I honestly was like, well, who? And then it took me a minute to think of Tony because I made that assumption of, but Tony's married. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I've, there's been rogues and cats yeah. through all sorts of recency romances, but for some reason it didn't occur to me initially. And then I thought, well, wait, he's the only one other one it could be. Well, yeah, you know? when she kept insisting that he cannot marry her because she did that pretty early on. So I with you was like, oh, it's Jack. And then I thought, Oh, well, it's got to be the politician, because if we're being stereotypical political story, it's always a politician. <laughs> you know what I right? mean? Like that and it's the greatest conflict. Something. It's yeah. the greatest conflict they could build. Okay. It had to be Jack or Tony. Yeah. And that was almost regardless of him being married. It was just, well, yeah, the scandal of, you know, getting someone pregnant. He would never live it down. Kind of thing. So so when it was finally revealed, I was like, "Oh yeah, well, yeah, I kind of saw that <laughs> well, coming. coming. He really was the only one because like it couldn't have been the baker in the baker shop or, you know, other random characters they mentioned because they weren't they weren't important enough. Exactly. Well, and interestingly with Tony, I did have a thought wondering about his intentions and his feelings because he was acting kind of strange in the yeah. book too. And so initially I thought we get to see that he's not happy in his marriage and things like that. And so initially I thought well maybe he really is in love with Helen, but in regency times divorce was very rare. So I'm like, well there's no there's no out for this. There's no happy ending yeah. here. So what do we do? But you get to see through the book that that Helen was seduced or whatever. She was taken advantage yeah. of. And so that really does show as Amy said that shows the cad like character oh, yeah. of Tony. By the end. And so that was kind of nice. At the end, he gets his comeuppance. Yeah. He gets kind of publicly humiliated. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And and he gets called to the carpet. It's not swept under the rug. Right. The mom can't manage it. She can't yes. um, scandalize it and, like, make it better. She right. has to just face it, that it's yep. not a golden boy, and he screwed himself over right. with his own choices. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the irony is, is that Nick probably would have made a way better politician. <laughs> than Tony ever would have, because he really cared. He would yeah. have really cared about the town and representing England, and he would have taken it seriously. Well, and Nick, having served in the war, has more of a an internal, I think, idea of what it really means, what politics can really do to affect people's lives. I did love that they show some scenes of Nick and Phoebe working together at the printing press when yeah. Jack Jack and his girl end up eloping. And during that week they're gone, Nick and Phoebe have to take over the printing press for the, the newsletter, the newspaper. And I found that really fun too, because I like to imagine that that's what they're going to do. They're going to help Jack and they're going to kind of build, you know, in the happily ever after, they're going to kind of build that up again. And that will be an outlet for Nick to be able to use some of his... I won't even call it political ambition, but some of his interest in politics and stuff to try to make a difference in the world. Because I got the feeling that Phoebe inspired him a little bit to want to step up and do something with his life and make a difference for people. Yes. He had kind of been a ship without a rudder or whatever the saying is, I think for a long time. I think that's why he joined the army because he was looking for purpose. And so, yeah, I really liked that aspect that she gave him something to focus his energy on because he's really good. I mean, he was really good at... What he was doing, um, when he came to, you know, convince her and talk to her and befriend her, he's good at that. But he felt so guilty because he was doing it for the wrong reasons, you know. Yeah. Like another aspect of this book that I thought was interesting is they're addressing the fact that although Phoebe Sparks is essentially like a, a gentlewoman, right? She didn't come from the upper echelon of society. She wasn't a member of the ton. She didn't wasn't the daughter of a peer, anything like that. And so she. After her dad died, she ran off, basically, with Mr. Sparks and married this guy who was older than her. And she had a relatively happy marriage um, until they suffered a miscarriage. And that kind of put a real strain on their relationship. But after she's a widow, she's living kind of in poverty. She talks about not having enough. She has to help do the washing. She has one servant that kind of helps her. They can't afford enough food sometimes. And I found that interesting to really have this realization because they talk we see a lot of it through her eyes but also through Nick's eyes where there's a point where he brings her a gift of a ham because she has no need for a bonnet or whatever. Exactly. She needs a ham. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's kind of fun to see him try to be conscientious and subtle about it. He's not like, here, let me give you thousands and thousands of dollars. He's saying, I can buy you a ham and I can do these littler things to make your life easier. Because yeah. their meet cute happens when he comes upon um, her and her servant doing the laundry and he thinks they're both servants. And so he ends up getting roped into helping them and stuff. And so again, he his humility was kind of yeah. refreshing. He wasn't, I'm the Greatest at everything, and I'm just the epitome of of male. Yeah, yeah. It was great. It was. Um, I also really liked it because it gave her motivation. Because you might be thinking, why would she marry a stranger? Why would she do this for her sister? And I think it was just how strained her situation was. There was no alternative for her. She can't, couldn't, barely supported herself. No way she was going to be able to support her sister. Yeah, because Helen and the mom had a falling out. And so Helen left her mom's house and came to move in with Phoebe. And Phoebe had a minute of like, girl, I cannot even afford my own self. Yeah. How am I going to afford you and a baby? Yeah. And so that desperation, it was frustrating because you want everything to just go nice and smooth in this love story. And like, Phoebe, no. don't. Like, right. I love how we tell ourselves, don't choose that guy. we It's a love story. It's a romance. We know they're going to end up together. Right. But you still have that sense of desperation. And she's just yeah. trying to take care of her family. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the honesty of her self-reflection of being irritated at her sister sometimes and being mm-hmm. like, I don't want to clean up your mess. And then feeling guilty and being like, okay, that's selfish of me. Let's do this. But to me, it was honest to have those moments of, oh, I want my room to myself. I don't want to be sharing a room with you. Like it just. It, yeah. It she had times. Reveal. She had times of, I have nowhere else to go. I yeah. live in two rooms in this <laughs> building. Like I, you're in my bedroom, you know, like yeah. where can I even go? So that was cool. Another thing that I really liked about one of the topics they brought up was the miscarriage and the pregnancy. So it was really interesting that Phoebe's marriage was very much damaged and and harmed by a tragic miscarriage that they had. And her sense of self, her sense of womanhood, all of these things seem to be profoundly affected by it. And yet she wants to step up and help her sister who's pregnant And there was an interesting parts where she would reflect on maybe, maybe I'm jealous. Maybe I'm hurt. Maybe I'm having a hard time with the fact that I lost my baby that I wanted. Yeah. And my sister is pregnant in an impossible situation where she can't even marry and have this baby. You know, it was really interesting that they brought up that topic so honestly in a Regency instead of just blowing off a, a miscarriage as something that just happen and doesn't affect people. Right. I like how it delved into how it impacted her relationship with her spouse because it is actually very true statistically speaking that it can destroy relationships because you're it's such a loss and it's so painful and if you don't know if you handle the grief in different ways and you don't know how to help and support each other through it and I got the impression that her spouse was a more just wipe your tears. We got a life moves on kind of thing. We and got a business to run. Yeah. She needed that time to cope and mourn. And that's really what drove them apart. Um, and so it was a very honest stuff. And I like how she, I like how she can relate to the main character in the sense of, you know, he taught, there's a scene where he's talking about, he shouldn't complain about his limp because he, he, you know, he didn't lose his leg or he didn't lose an arm. And she's reflecting on how people told her after the baby that she should be grateful that she didn't, that the baby went like that instead of there's women that lose full grown children. And there's a line that says pain is pain. It hurts. It doesn't matter. Your love. You don't get to say my pain is greater than yours because of the situation. And so I just, I don't know. It was just, it was a very real and honest book. Like I feel like this person, wasn't afraid to delve into real things and real emotions and i that is one thing i really appreciated about it because it's very different i've never read a regency like this before so it kind of blew my mind in that aspect yeah phoebe went through the loss of her father whom she loved and was very close with then she gets married and it's happy and everything and then a, a late term miscarriage a stillbirth a loss of a child and then her marriage is fractured and then she doesn't get the opportunity to ever put the pieces back together no, properly. He, dies, he right? gets Pretty sick, and he after. dies within a week of getting sick. Ugh. And then she has all the guilt of feeling like maybe I should have, could have, would have done something different to resolve it. Maybe it's my fault. I didn't love him enough, and just dealing with all of that. And then it's now years later. I want to say it's been like four years or something since the, the death of her yeah. husband. Um, and so now. Helen's on your doorstep and she's pregnant and just all those complicated emotions. But you get the feeling that Phoebe's the type that's like, she's a survivor. Yeah. She's going to keep fighting and working and do whatever she has to do uh, to, to figure things out and yeah. take care of people. Yeah. And I think she feels again, back to relationships. So they even kind of del- delve into sibling relationships. She carries that guilt of abandoning her sister to their mom and she didn't have a good relationship with the mom. And so I feel like, that kind of drives her too is, you know, I should have brought you with me and you were only 11 or 12 or whatever it was when I went, I escaped, I found a man to marry so I could escape my mom basically and just left you behind. Um, and I think it's so refreshing that guilt is what might drive you. You might not want to do it, but you do it because of guilt or responsibility. And that's just how we are. You're a human. Exactly. And you sometimes make great choices and you sometimes make choices out of necessity. Yeah, definitely. Another thing, really, the characters I thought overall were pretty, really solid in this book. Yeah. So the two potential suitors that Phoebe is facing, there's one for the Whig party, and that's the local confectioner, Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Moon, I think was his name, and then the other guy for the Tory party can't remember his name, but he's a widow with a, with a daughter. And what I also liked about these two characters, just in a broad stroke, is that they seemed realistic. Yeah. They had pluses and minuses yes. to their nature and their characters. Neither one was a cat or an awful person. Uh, they both wanted to marry her. They both wanted to make a relationship, but they were realistic talking about it. They wanted to get to know each other. They didn't dive in. Uh, no one made any crazy like uh, sexual advances right. or anything. It was it was well done that way to, to show she had solid options. Yeah. she You could tell that the chemistry wasn't the same. She might not really be happy, but you could tell that she could try to figure out how to be happy and content in either relationship. Yeah. And, and that was nice too. It didn't yeah. feel like the classic trope of like, do you want the evil slimy villain or this godlike <laughs> hero? Right. No one had to be bad and the other good. And I really liked how she tried with both. Like an actual courting with both mm-hmm. and let's find a common ground and let's see, uh, you know, meet me in the middle. You um, could tell she had been married before and yeah. she knew that marriage would take compromise and effort yes. and work. There are a couple of things I really liked about the heroine. She would think some stuff in her head and I was like, oh, that's me. There's one part where she says, thinking about herself, that she simply wasn't a good housekeeper. <laughs> It's like, true that. Oh, the honesty when Nick comes over one of the first times and she realizes she she didn't clean up the front room. And she's like, oh, crap. I'm not a good housekeeper. (laughs) Like, it's just like, I'm okay with that. There was this funny moment where she's talking about how she only a handful of years ago, she used to be flirting with boys. And she says, now she sounded like someone's mother. So like that <laughs> that shift between I'm a young, bubbly girl to I'm turning into my mother kind of thing. And not even specifically her mother, but just I now have that motherly tone. I'm now given that respect because now the men look at me. Matronly, rather than you know the flirtatious <laughs> debutante or whatever I once was, and and that cracked me up. I think we all have that moment in our own young lives where we realize, wait a minute, <laughs> right? they don't see me as young as I used to be. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of those stories where people talk about like, wait, they no longer want to see my ID card at the bar or whatever. We're like, wait a minute, how old am I right? to you? It was kind of that moment. Because in my head, I'm still picturing that young early twenties, and so then for that moment of, oh no, I'm actually 40 now and a mother. And so I probably do come across very motherly now. One of the interesting aspects of this book in regards to who the people are physically is that she was described as being rather buxom and curvy. They talked about having larger breasts and larger hips and things like that. And it was a nice switch from the very slender waif-like creature, which more power to you if that's who you are, yeah. right? But it became repetitive in a lot of books I read, and so yes. it was nice to feel like there was an acknowledgement of different shapes and sizes and people. There was actually one scene that I really liked. It was during one of their love scenes, and um, she's topless, and they describe this scene as, her breasts pulled wantonly to the sides by their own weight. Right? And I was like, that is really what happens to big boobs. Exactly. Hallelujah. She doesn't have the young, taut, firm, perky that are like the classic words we hear. Yes. It was realistic. And, yes. and for someone who might have a larger chest, it's like affirming to be yes. like, oh yeah, I totally know what that means. That's my boobs or because whatever. Because remember, they're basically bags of fat. Right. So uh, I actually really, re- I actually found this book as a recommendation because as I was explaining to you, I stumbled on BBW historical romances. And I was like, what kind of kinky stuff is PBW? <laughs> and I looked it up and I think it's big, beautiful women yeah. is what it stands for. Um, because I want characters that have normal body shapes. And what has been frustrating to me, because even in uh, another book, we review Earth Song, she's tall and buxom, but she has a narrow waist. I was like, no, 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 no. I want a big woman that is she can be big-breasted, small-breasted, but she might have a soft belly. She might have very wide hips or big thighs. Like, I want a real body type, not a Barbie body type. Being Having big breast does not make you a big girl, in my opinion. There is a difference. Right. Um, so I loved this one because it, I did feel like she was more a plus-size heroine. She... And okay with that because that's... Who she was. Um, I know they referenced her as like plump once or something and, and anyone can interpret that whatever way they want but I almost like that besides the breast thing which I also really liked that scene she doesn't describe the body a lot. She's not like oh in her you know narrow waist and her long strong legs. I mean she might reference that she had strong legs or something like that I don't remember but I think the fact that I don't remember how her body was described was right. so refreshing because it meant We didn't spend pages describing someone's body because it doesn't matter. It shouldn't be about physically what they look like. It should just be about them as a person. So I've always had this thought, which I'm curious what you and, and others might think, but I've always wondered what it would be like to have a romance novel written where they really just don't describe the physical aspects of the characters they just let us imagine whatever we imagine yeah. and let that be the person. And and for some, maybe that would take them out of the moment, not maybe. bring them in. But for me, it would be almost kind of refreshing for me to just based on their personality, based on yeah. just who who they remind me of in my own life. I might yeah. imagine similar body types and just let it be creative and different um, because to me, I think it's about what's inside the people. Yeah. It's about the dialogue and the character development and those things that make it really real fleshed out yes. people regardless of their flesh. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't mind if it's, you know, oh, she fit perfectly to me because I can imagine any body type fitting perfectly to you. It doesn't have to be a certain type of body type to you. However, right. however this woman is, if you love her, she will fit you perfectly exactly. regardless of and same for the male, he could be balding with a pouch. Does that make sense? But, right. if, he fit, but if he has a good character on the inside, so I do think there is this obsession with with describing hair color, eye color, body. They have to be so muscular because I have yet, I've yet to read a romance where the male. I'll, I'll, I'll i take that back. I have read a historical romance where he started out with a paunch because he was drunk, but then by the end of the book, he's like whipped into shape and course, has a better yeah. you know body. But wouldn't it have been fun, though, if he just kept the punch the whole time and and that was okay because she loved him, you know, so I, I would love a book like that that didn't describe the characters at all. I mean, it might be a little weird if there was literally nothing to start my picture, but at the very least. Just once. Just tell me once. Hair color, eye color, I'm good. Right. That's all I need. That's all I need to know. That's a that's a template. And that it's male or female. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll write our own romance go. novel if we get tired of podcasting and reading other people's work. <laughs> Otherwise, Rose Lerner, if you're listening to this one, feel free to write that book for us. Right? Because I just... feel like she would do really well I think so. at it. Because she described her characters less, and it was very refreshing. Yeah. Okay. One thing I have to call out for this author and lots of authors is what I like to call a vocabulary boast. <laughs> and it's when they pull out a word and you read it and you're kind of like, what? I've yeah. never heard that word. Yeah. So you look it up. I had a couple of those too. So the word for me in this one was tautology. And I thought, what the hell is that? <laughs> because it's a study of something, right? Because it ends in ology. I think so. So uh-huh. the quote is, um, what a profound tautology. After she had said the quote you did, pain is pain. It right. hurts. So I thought, what on earth is a tautology? So I looked it up. Uh, It's a noun and it is the saying of the same thing twice in different words. Um, And so their example in the dictionary is they arrived one after the other in succession. So when she says pain is pain, it It hurts. hurts. But it always makes me chuckle because I like to imagine that our authors have a degree in English or they have their favorite thesaurus. And this is how they're finding some of these words they throw at us. But I appreciate it. Keep it up. That way we broaden our vocabulary as well. But it makes me chuckle like, you probably got that on your SATs you or something and you wanna show us you right. still know what it means. I do enjoy when there are some new words, but I like it to be limited. If I read a book and I'm having to define every fifth word, I'm not gonna finish reading it because I just it, it I I don't it takes too much time. Then it suddenly just became do homework. It. Exactly. Exactly. And I've had a book like that. Where it felt like I was constantly looking up every word and it just wasn't enjoyable. So I did like her because I didn't feel it was overwhelming. I was going to say that one of the great brilliances of these e-books and like the Libby app and Kindle and stuff, you can, you know, long press on a word and it will pop up an option to define it in real time. And that makes it a lot easier for these unknown words. The funny side of that though is I still like a good paperback in the bathtub or whatever, and I will literally find myself sometimes holding my finger to a paper page for a split second waiting for a dictionary to pop up. That's hilarious. And then I'm like, "Damn it, cuz <laughs> I like, I don't know what the word means." So, yeah, I love the option to do it now, but it cracks That's me up. That's where you keep your phone handy and you say Google, <laughs> "Look up." That's hilarious. Um, so the one word that stuck out to me that I didn't know what it was is inquiet, in inquiet. What? I-N-C-H-O-A-T-E. Oh, I always said incoate. inquiet, Maybe inchoate. that is hmm. What is the upside down E? I don't know. Okay. So these pronunciations are not helpful because we don't know how to pre- pronounce them. But that means just begun and so not fully formed or developed. Rudimentary. Hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, like you, anytime I see a word that I didn't, there was also a, a food they referenced and I wanted to say, what's a jugged hair? What does that mean? Which is basically just a stew. The one minus for this book to me, I, I loved it, but with any strong character story, it's always a little bit slow. <laughs> and so it was, it wasn't bad. I wasn't bored. Um, but there wasn't the excitement that I sometimes find in more fast pacing paste books um because it did it just flowed along plowed along with her life Um, And it was interesting, but, but yeah, it was a little bit slow for me. None of the conflicts were as life threatening as some books. Sometimes there's kidnaps or sometimes there's the threat of ruination or sometimes there's a murder or whatever. Right. And that's true. And this one there, there was high stakes for pregnancy. Exactly. There were high stakes for Helen a little bit, but again, you have nine months to sort that out. And so there wasn't a sense of urgency and danger. There was no sword fighting or dramatic rescue. It was all with words. And so while that brought all the realism, it did make it like a slower miniseries rather than a like fast paced movie or something. Yes. I love the characters. Right. But then this is just a personal pet peeve of mine with romances. And that is when a character decides for the good of the other to, that they are going to remove themselves from their life because it's for their they're good and I'm not going to talk to this person like an adult and we're not going to have an actual discussion about this I'm going to lie to you and I'm going to be cruel and I'm going to make you hate me but it's for your good I'm doing this for your benefit I like I put three uppercase hate hate hates on this because it is the rudest thing to do to someone to to manipulate and decide for them what is best for them it drives me nuts i'm gonna be an asshole because i love you yes you're welcome like it just drives me nuts and i was disappointed because this author had been so free of all those tropes for so long everything else and then we get to the end and it's i'm i'm gonna destroy this man that i love and i'm talking destroy him because I don't want him to know that I'm doing it for him. So like for context, Nick was essentially ready to just be like whatever to his family and, and marry Phoebe. He loved Phoebe. That's what he wanted. Well, then Nick's mom hears about this. They're, they're engaged. Nick and Phoebe, they agreed to marry his mom. hears about this and comes and talks to him first and then says, she wants to talk alone with Phoebe. And then she basically bribes Phoebe to get her to cry off and, um, Gives her the money she needs to go away with her sister, get that situation resolved without her having to marry anyone else. Right. And so Phoebe has to lie to Nick and say she's changed her mind. And that breaks his heart because he was willing to give up everything. And suddenly she's not willing to be in it together with him as a real marriage. Yes. You know? Yeah. It seemed very out of character for two people that have been so open and honest with each other, almost to the extreme. And then suddenly she decides this is what's best for you. And, and what irritated me is then don't say you're doing it because it's what's best for them. Admit that you don't want to do, you are the coward and you're mm-hmm. running away. And admit that to the person's face mm-hmm. and say, I'm the coward. I'm running away from this. Sorry. You yeah. know, like just at least be honest. And so it, it, it was disappointing because the character had been so stellar. I had Tell the it. same basic note on the similar scene happening. Yeah. And whatever it was, was, uh, the obnoxious lies and hidden blah, blah to create tension. People are stupid. <laughs> that sums it up. People are stupid. He's so frustrating. And then, as I recall the ending, we didn't even get a great real confession no. out of her. So she got off easy and Nick was a little bit too forgiving. I think so. And so that was frustrating. Cause... I think so because I like that he... I liked at first that he was walking away from her. And he's like, you're just, I'm pretty much, you're as bad as my mom. You mm-hmm. manipulated me. Not cool. And she tries to be like, well, this is why. And I'm so sorry. And I, he forgives her. She should have come to him on her knees begging forgiveness. She is way too lucky. that doesn't he end up showing up at her house? Yeah. To be like, I'm yeah. sorry I left and reacted that way. I understand why you did it. I'm like, okay. Okay. He's a great person. Sure. But come off. Like she needed to, s- to it, grovel a little bit. It in was my like opinion. the author lost their way and forgot she'd established this whole precedence of let's talk honestly with each other. Yes. We're adults. Let's let's have a real human relationship. We can understand each other. And suddenly fell into all of the romantic novel tropes yes. um, just like the to last create two tension. Chapter, chapters. Yeah. yeah, it was frustrating. I just imagined an editor being like, um, "This is supposed to be a soap opera. <laughs> you right. need to add some drama." So. I just thought this was a a very wonderful commentary on society or people in general. She says, there is something almost comically mean in pettiness with nothing to gain. Like you almost understand it if they get something from it. But if they don't get something from it, then they're just being cruel to be cruel. And it's almost one of those that makes you laugh because you're... you're thinking what is the point that seems to take a lot of effort i don't know i just again another great commentary on social norms yeah i get the feeling that rose learner is a good observer of like human nature yeah and that she's trying at least in this book to bring forward some of the real humanity of people and how that can be to our detriment and to our strength and how the blend of all of us together can make a great little society and stuff yeah um so it was a really good book, and I really enjoyed it. I am curious to know what your rereadability scale would be for this book. <laughs> uh, for this one, Once was enough for me. Uh, it was enjoyable. I recommend reading it, uh, but I don't think I would ever need to read it again. Because I, you know, like I said, it was just a little bit slow, so I feel like uh, I would remember the story, and so then there'd be no reason <laughs> to read it again, because I would already know exactly what's going to happen. I think for me, it's probably like a two- one being the lowest, five the highest. I would say a two just because I have a gift of not always remembering plots. <laughs> so I'll probably forget enough of the details that if I found it again, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that was fun. But also there were some factors that were really confusing for me the first time through. Oh. Kind of like, wait, Mr. Moon, the, the the confectioner, makes a comment that he'd lose his shop if he doesn't marry... Phoebe and I remember being like what why what (laughs) and so now that I kind of get it I could see myself reading it at least one more time to To like let everything yeah everything gel and like oh that's (laughs) what the full story was about so that's funny you probably would you'd be like oh this this story makes way more sense now (laughs) exactly would you read other books by this author I like would actually, I I really did. So this was the first book I had read after a drought of just not being into romance novels for a oh, while. Okay. I go through waves. I get sick of the tropes. I get yeah. sick of the overt sex scenes. <laughs> I get sick of sick yeah. of the Barbie you dolls, like whatever. <laughs> I do, and so uh, I really did enjoy it. And she kind of got me interested in trying other books. So I would be curious to read more. I recommend checking out the rest of the series. I haven't read it yet, but I know like book two. It actually has a Jewish character.
1: Oh, so that's really different. Right?
0: I mean, I think I've heard him reference three times. Right. They're always moneylenders character. Every time. And so. I think part of the plot is actually hiding it, but it's just really fascinating yeah. to me to read uh, a hero that's Jewish. I thought that was very unique. So I, I'm with you. I, I would read more in her <laughs> series. She's definitely in my library queue because I think she's the one to read because they're, they're bound to be interesting and unique stories. I hope, you know, I hope. That'll be fun. Okay. I think and, that's it. Yeah. Another one bites the dust. Join us for our next episode where we'll be talking about The Truth About Cads and Dukes by Alyssa Braden. Questions, comments, recommendations? Send us an email at snarky sisterspodcast at gmail.com.